Pemerintahan Joko Widodo dan Yusuf Kala bercita-cita mengembalikan laut sebagai teras utama Indonesia. Untuk mewujudkan Indonesia sebagai poros maritim dunia, Presiden Jokowi punya lima jurus. Pertama, pembangunan kembali budaya maritim Indonesia. Pilar kedua, Presiden Widodo promised to return Indonesia to a maritime power when he first took office in 2014. It was one of Widodo's major platform policies and there was a lot of talk about it in his presidential campaign that year and during the early part of his first term. We're fascinated by history and often wondered if Widodo hoped to bring back this maritime power, what did this power look like before? Were the kingdoms that controlled the region which eventually became Indonesia, were they maritime powers? This is Indonesia In-Depth. I'm Sean Corrigan. Roughly speaking, until around the end of the 1500s or so, the territory that we know as Indonesia was actually comprised of several kingdoms. It was trading between Java, the Malaccas, Sulawesi, and other islands, and there were trading posts on the northern coast of Java. Although there was a lot of trade, were the kingdoms back then maritime powers? Well, I think it, it, it depends a lot on, on how you define the maritime powerness at that point, right? Because if you compare and contrast uh, with the other seagoing powers uh, in that period, it's very different, obviously, from, let's say, Western colonial empires, right? Where when they think of themselves as maritime powers, they mean they need to be able to cross vast oceans and then have colonial projects across different continents, right? If that's the measurement of a maritime power in that period, then obviously Indonesia or those kingdoms were not maritime power in that global scale. That's Dr. Evan Laksmana, a political scientist and senior researcher at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, here in Jakarta. Were they maritime power in a much more smaller scale, as in did they have the ability to launch small expeditions across some of the islands in Indonesia? Yes, that's probably true. Uh, did they have uh, sustained in long periods uh, ability to keep that power by some sort of vassal state arrangement? I think there were some of them, but not very sustainable. And part of the story of how the maritime kingdoms uh, in, in Indonesia's history were were seen as grand its ambition and, and, and power, but always short has to do with the kind of domestic political intrigues that gets passed on in terms of the stories until today. So a lot of the lessons of history, if you will, that you get in some of the history textbooks or, or in some of the, uh, the research on, on those kingdoms were about the stratagems of the palace. It was about palace intrigues. It was about how do you balance competing power centers? How do you make sure that you have no challenger? Or how do you engage in improving economic development uh, while making sure that nobody's strong enough to challenge you? So those kinds of stories, I think, is what Indonesia's sort of continental internal security-centric uh, view of those kingdoms were. So this is why it's, it's hard where when you have a long history that, there is such a thing as a maritime history with us, that they had some form of maritime power, but the stories don't talk so much about those maritime strategies. And there were noble stories about people doing all kinds of fishing all the way across the ocean. There was an important maritime culture to it, but the political 
uh, side of thing that gets highlighted is always the palace intrigue and, and, and the idea of power. And whether or not this is partially because of the Java-centric worldview that became the foundation of yeah. the Indonesian state or not, that's, that's something that I think uh, historians should be able to answer. Is the Java-centric angle, is, is it more of a defensive land power? Um, I think if you try to draw analogies, I think it'll be closer to the way India thinks of its mandala concentric circle, where your realm of power is small, but then you have a second layer, third layer, where your your power decreases as the layer gets gets wider. So a Javanese conception of power is similar to that mandala concept, essentially. So the focus has always been strengthening the first core of the layer. And this is the same uh, defense uh, logic that members of the military applied and used to inform our own military doctrine in the 60s up until, in fact, if you ask them now, probably up until today, that if the center of power is Java, that means you have to make sure that the center is not disturbed, and then the rest of the, of the outer layer should be following suit. And um, the problem with that concentric circle is that the map is less about controlling the waterways and making sure that the center holds from internal uh, power struggles. So the, the focus on stabilizing the center means that you don't necessarily have the instinct to look at the ocean and the waterways as a source of power, which in a way was a little bit like how the British uh, switched their mindset from a continental to a maritime power um, uh, during colonial times, right? When they only see trade as the source of power, then they start to think about, okay, maybe we need to invest more and we need to make sure that our Navy is the strongest Navy across the world. That hasn't been the case. The source of power for a lot of the rulers in Java did not come from trade and the waters. It comes from internal agriculture economy. It's about making sure that there's no challenger and all that. So that sense of a continental outlook and because of the domination of the Javanese thinking, it makes the maritime elements of our history not necessarily clouded, but sort of on the sidelines in terms of maybe number 12 to 15 instead of number one. Mm -hmm. Again, the dates aren't exact, but mid 1500s and maybe 1530 or so, you had uh, the downfall of the Majapahit kingdom to the Mataram kingdom. And at the time, the Mataram kingdom moved inland, sort of into the hinterland of, of Java. Did that have an impact on Indonesia's maritime culture? I think for sure that had an impact. The extent to which, uh, how much it, it was retold in terms of the stories, afterward and how it creates an even more insular. I think it wasn't intentional. I think it wasn't sort of well thought out. I think they were just responding to whatever they needed to do. But the retelling of that story, I think, is where the lessons that you focus on are the downfall, not necessarily what it means after the downfall when you rebuild and all that. So I think this is where uh, we need much better research, I think, in terms of how some histories are told, not necessarily just the controversial histories like uh, 1965, but also the longer history of the Nusantara kingdoms and all that. And I think this is where I'm afraid there aren't that many more historians um, 
after Pa Adrian passed away a couple of years ago, there aren't that many maritime historians anymore. Just there aren't that many uh, maritime law experts anymore after Pa Hashim Jalal. Uh, you can count it with one hand of, of those who you would consider as the next generation of maritime law experts. So it's, it's ironic that when it comes to human capital, uh, going back to Jokowi's vision, that the development of human capital when it comes to maritime law, maritime research, maritime policies, maritime histories, that part of the knowledge sector, if you will, I think is hugely underdeveloped. Interesting. Someone told me that several hundred years ago, many of the homes along the, sh the shorelines in Indonesia, the front door was facing the shoreline or towards the beach. Mm -hmm. And then after, say, the colonial powers, eventually the door was switched to facing inland rather than the shoreline. Is there any um, truth to that? Well, I think uh, there is some truth for sure in that colonialism shifted the political geography of the coastal communities. Uh, because now, when in the past you may see the ocean as a source of you know, uh, resources and trade, but now you see them as a source of threat. This is the same thing that happened with Japan in the 17th and, and the 18th century, right? When the West arrived, uh, you start to think of the ocean in a very different way. I'm not sure the extent to which the actual doors were shifted, but I do think that that notion of the ocean as a source of foreign things and, and foreign threats, I think certainly played a role in shifting Indonesia's uh, inward outlooking period um, for a while. I'm not sure we've ever gotten past that. Um, and I think throughout the Revolutionary War era, I think a lot of the battles were fought inland too, right? They weren't fought on the beaches and all that. Yeah, sure, there's some some battles that remain known today where there's uh, actual sh sea battles that we had some ships and all that but they were never as as expansive or as prominent as the land battles so i think sure it's 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 far to draw a line between 2 300 years of colonialism to the contemporary insular or land based outlook but i do think when it comes to strategic thinking when it comes to examples of how you develop ideas about defense, it is hard not to look at the selective reading of the history and how that shapes how you think about how you look at defense and, 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 and how you think of threats, where are they coming from? So I'll give you one example. The idea of Indonesia's total people's defense doctrine is premised on the notion that threats will come first through the ocean because the idea is to repel them before they land at the beaches. And if you can, stop them at the beaches. And if you cannot, you come back to the hinterlands and, 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 and do guerrilla warfare. But the premise has always been, that means the first threat externally would come from the ocean, uh, which on hindsight, that should mean that we should invest more in maritime capabilities. But the military thinks, no, we should invest more in guerrilla strategy and making sure we have a territorial structure that can prepare the people uh, for, for a prolonged guerrilla warfare. So why why is it like that? Why, why is the military thinking like that then? Well, part of it is 
the legacy of the Revolutionary War era itself, right? Uh, when they first created the territorial command structure, because Indonesia's geography was so fragmented, we might as well use that to our advantage. So that if let's say the Dutch at the time or whoever occupied Sulawesi or Kalimantan, parts of Java can still live. If they occupy Java, we can still live off in Sulawesi or Sumatra. So the idea is to divide the country into clusters, into independent compartments, if you will, that the military and uh, parts of the civil authority can still live in some version. And because the the country was split into these compartments as a way to make sure that in case of invasion, we don't all get run out at the first sign of occupation of Yogyakarta. Uh, that means you invest in the local relationships with the villagers uh, uh, and, and the local communities around uh, the military bases. And when that happens, you don't have any energy left for expensive maritime stuff. You focused on the people-to-people -people stuff. And because it's cheaper, right? It's cheaper to build relationships with the local elites than to buy ships. Yeah, yeah. So because of that that legacy of the revolutionary period, I think it creates a path dependency in which you're already set on this path where the army dominates planning when the army figures out it's a it has to be based on a territorial command structure. The navy and the air force are 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 secondary to that idea. Plus we don't have the resources anyway to buy all of those things. Uh, so I think Plus, if you account for the fact that in 1965, the Navy and Air Force were not seen as siding with the army in the fight against communism, it, that's a difficult legacy to get past. So, and you see this in, in the number of people they recruited over the years. It's always very much heavy on the army. Um, the Navy and Air Force doesn't even become a TNI commander until after Reformasi. Yep, um, yep. So it makes sense that um, it's really, really long for the Navy and Air Force to regain any central role in, in defense planning and doctrine. We thank Dr. Evan Laxmana for joining our program. This podcast is produced by In-Depth Creative. Thank you for listening.